This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. I know. I pushed the button. There we go. It's it's recording now. We're recording. Woo! We've done it. Okay. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. Woo! Another COVID edition. Go team. Okay. So I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me today is... Valerie Willis. And... What? Okay. Val failed on that introduction. Again. Again. That's an ongoing thing. I'm always doing <laughs> introductions. What's funny is she's like, I'm going to do the introduction. And then when it gets to it, it's like, <laughs> I forgot. Line, line. Can somebody <laughs> okay, let's talk about what we're drinking a little bit. So I found in my fridge, this is what happens. It's scavenging time. But no, I found a Stella Rosa, Stella Rosa, Le Original. I, th- I think that means it's original. And, um, you know, um, El Con- I don't know, 1917, but I don't think this is really 1917, but it's a sparkling red wine. So I'm drinking sparkling red wine. Val, what are you drinking with us? Uh, Bailey's and coffee. Like an adult. Okay. I'm not, I'm not very awake today. <laughs> this ought to be fun. But yeah. I do have, look, look, no pickle jar. Uh, I, don't, I know they can't see, but no pickle jar. And... My my cup says, let's eat, comma, Timmy, correct, at the dinner table. Let's eat, Timmy, correct, on a raft in the ocean. <laughs> Editing and commas are fun. So, yeah. lovely guest of ours, what are you drinking? I have a lovely Smithwick's chocolate porter this morning. Oh, my God. I need to, Valerie, write that down. I don't have a pen. She, I don't have she, a, hold on. Sticky? Yes, know? put it on one of your stickies. So, I, full disclosure to our audience, we um, had uh, our lovely guest on before, and we maybe had what I would call a technical difficulty that we had a computer crash that wiped out her episodes. So, this is a redo. It's like a retake, retaking, we're reshooting, we're doing round the whole two. thing. Round two. And she had this amazing porter last time, and I was like, I'm going to remember that. And then I drink, and then I was like, I totally nope. forgot what porter nope. she's she, she totally forgot it. And now this morning she's making me write it on a sticky note. Yes. And, and it's, what is, what is, oh. The okay. <laughs> okay, we're going to start anyway. Yeah, Let's we're talk start. about what you write this episode starting off so well. <laughs> So tell our lovely listeners about what you write. I write memoirs that are each focused on a specific change in life. So the first one I wrote that came out in January of 2020 is Redefining Family. And it's about the permanence of a mother's love. It's my story as a birth mom in an open adoption over the last 20 years. And the next one that comes out is Turtle Envy. It's how... Facing the fear of diving added new adventures in life and new depths in love. And that one is all about facing your fear and not letting not letting comfort get in the way of going to experience these grand, amazing things. And as I learned how to scuba dive, I realized that this would have been a whole lot easier if I were to take some help from my husband and maybe I had some trust issues that I could sort through along the way. So it ends up being about fear and marriage. I love this. I love both of these. So let's talk about, and I know we're, we're restating things that were on the last podcast, but since the listeners actually never got to hear your brilliant story, (laughs) um, let's talk about what made you decide to write these books. So Redefining Family was the book I was never going to write. I did not want to go into the past. I did not want to relive all that heartache and pain. But when Katerina, the daughter I placed at 18, uh, when she turned 18, she had so many questions. And even though she knew about me her whole life and her parents were generous and we had full contact and she knew who I was, she would ask these big questions in five minute gaps. So we'd get five minutes alone together and she'd ask me something huge, like, did you actually love my dad? And I go, whoa, this is something without the context, without who I was at 17. This is such a, such a difficult thing to answer in the scope of 
20 seconds before somebody else walks in. And so writing Redefining Family was, it started as my way to show her who I was at 17, all of it, where I was, where my mindset was, why I found it impossible that we could be successful if I had kept her and raised her. And then after I had written the first couple of drafts, I looked at it and went, you know, this is the book I really could have used back then, right after placing her when I was just in the absolute depths of grief and wondering if I'd ever be okay again. I really wanted somebody to show me how you get out of that. And so it really became a book of what it looks like to work through grief and to move forward anyway. Uh, so it's 20 years of experience trying to give the whole story that I thought she deserved. And I think it's great that you, you make the statement that this was the book that you needed. Uh, even in fiction writing, like a lot of us find that we're, we're writing a story because this is the book we wanted or needed. Um, and it, and yours takes it to a more intimate place and, and a very difficult thing, um, especially since I think it's only been recent in the recent couple of decades that the guy comes to the birthing of the child. Like a lot of people don't realize that part of our culture is still like hush hush and still coming out into the new new age. And so this whole lack of materials and help books and memoirs on these these touchier topics like adoption um, and, and stuff like that, I think it's awesome that uh, you were able to overcome the fear of, like, walk us through that, the, the tribulations of ha- transitioning from this is something private between me and, and my birth daughter to... I'm going to put this out into the world for, for public consumption. Like what were some of the things going through your head, trying to make that decision and, and, and wrestle with? Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Listen, I'm Valerie. We've talked a couple of times. What you should do is go to the deepest part of your soul and let's talk about your voyage there. <laughs> I'm going to have a drink of my Bailey's. <laughs> uh, so, Valerie, what the hell? <laughs> sorry. sorry. It, it's, a, it's a good, terrifying question. Um, when I, I, I did uh, allow myself at the beginning... But when I first started writing this, it was not going to be a book. It was not going to be seen by anybody. I just, I write to cope. I write to work through things. I write to process. So this was all just going to be for me in my own head. And then I realized this would actually benefit her. But if I had to do that, then it was going to take some heck of, heck of some good editing to cut out things that maybe didn't need to be shared with everybody. And it wasn't until I got to the overcoming grief part that the birth parent voice isn't heard. There's such a stigma around it. There's so much misinformation. There's so, and and you learn not to talk about it. People teach you very quickly that if you share that you placed a child for adoption, you get crazy feedback of, of how you're selfish, how you were incapable. Like it's, it's ridiculous the amount of misinformation that's out there. And so... 90% of adoption books are written by the adopting parents. It's necessary to change the narrative and to add to it. The old school narrative was when you place a baby, you move on, you forget it, you just go and live your life. And it's harmful for adoptees and for birth parents to be told that. And it was never true anyway. It's never been true. Yeah. But nobody's willing to share that story because there's there's a a potential backlash from others. So it was really drumming up all that confidence in yourself to say, I, I know better. And if you're misinformed, I will do my best to inform you. But, but those opinions, they can't keep me from speaking up because this is a voice that is needed. I love that. I love that. So writing, so these are two as Valerie liked to go down into the depths of your soul to talk about very personal <laughs> books. <laughs> Valerie's why we can't have nice things on this okay. podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, what, so you talked about sort of journaling for lack of a better way to put it journaling in the past. Have you ever written anything else? 
absolutely. So I've written fiction, nonfiction. Um, I write some sci-fi. I have a few stories that have been published. I write a lot. Um, and a lot of my processing through stuff comes out as fiction. Uh, if there's somebody I can't help, but I'd really like to help if they were willing to accept help. Uh, I end up turning them into a fictional character who gets the help they need magically. <laughs> I mean, this is my way of fixing the world. I keep putting into fictional stories to try to make that happen. I love that. So when did you start writing? I mean, start, when do you first remember writing? I don't remember a time that I didn't write. Uh, when I was really little, my mom would take pieces of paper and staple them together in the middle. And then I would write all the L's and E's and I's because that's what cursive writing looked like to me and illustrate it and then make her read me the story. Cause clearly there was a magical story in there that she needed to read. So I was writing before I could write. And she, if, if I recall from our last podcast, she would make up wonderful stories that went along with the books that you wrote. She did. Awesome. She did. She, she totally encouraged and indulged that part of me. Which is awesome. And I think it's, it's really important for anybody listening that regardless of what the art form is, we're talking about writing. But if your kid wants to be creative, besides maybe locking up the cat with duct tape or something, you should absolutely let them have whatever the creativity is and encourage it because they see it differently than we see it as adults when they're doing things. I always tell that to people like they wonder why a kid will tie a towel or sheet around their neck and try to climb up on the roof through a tree and jump off. And I'm like, cause they've thought as far as I can fly. They didn't think gravity, distance, like you, you can't like yeah. yell at them for breaking their arm or something. You, you got to go that that's how far they thought out the process and go, okay, well now that this has happened, let's, let's talk about height, <laughs> talk about gravity for a moment. We're going to, yeah. we're going to go over some science, you know, <laughs> just next time you decide to fly, let's just, you know, you have to miss the ground per Douglas Adams. You have to jump and miss the ground and then you're flying. Right. So. <laughs> I, I think it's important that they do that. So um, let's talk about some of your um, short stories and stuff like that. So you are so a fiction writer. How many stories have you published? Uh, I think I have four or five out there, um, largely dealing with um, kind of the same themes that show up in my creative nonfiction. It's it's resiliency, overcoming, facing facing your truth, and building the life that you want. That is very awesome. Where are they short stories in anthologies or just how are they published? Uh, there's one on um, fireside fiction. Uh, and there's another one coming out in an anthology this fall, actually. It's in the on time anthology by Transmundane Press. So that's okay. coming out soon. Um, I would have to go hunt for a couple of the others. That's okay. You're you totally allowed to hunt if one yeah. wants to hunt I've at some point. I've got a friend who wrote this epic short story that went into an anthology, and it was something about uh, the main character imploding, and she did not realize that her mom had submitted it into the anthology until she stumbled across it years later. I was like, Mom! <laughs> like, it was good. Because her mom's a self-published author. So she's like, uh, snuck that one in on her. Uh, but I, I think it's always, I, I think short stories and anthologies are always good for any author or writer. Like, if you're not, if you're not sure about your writing path or if you can do this, they're a quick reminder that you can. Um, because I'm always telling people, they're like, well, I don't know what to write. Well, good thing anthologies usually have a theme. They will give you the writing prompt, and you simply write to that prompt. Uh, for example, I host one, and I blend two genres, horror and comedy, because those two genres focus on the reader's reactions, and it's sort of reader-focused. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a great start. Um, how has those anthologies encouraged your confidence and being able to publish your nonfiction pieces. Oh, it's absolutely helpful to get industry feedback, but it's also a great way to break out of a slump. Uh, and especially if you have some writer's block. So 
uh, this spring, a few of my friends who are in a writer's group with me, we focused on COVID and we were, none of us were writing. We were all just sort of stuck. And so we decided to write about COVID for a number of weeks in a row. And we ended up putting together a full little anthology uh, called COVID-19. And it's all short stories from six different writers' perspectives. And it's exploring what was on our minds, exploring our fears, exploring maybe what society could turn into with time if we handled this all well. Um, and it was really cathartic, but it was also comforting to read each other's stories and say, oh my gosh, I completely feel that. And then to publish it and get the same feedback back to us to say, this is what I was feeling and I couldn't put words to it. It really, uh, it reminds you that writing is so much about empathy and being able to touch readers where their anxieties are is such a powerful thing to be able to do. It's very interesting you said that because I was talking to a good friend of mine this morning and um, I wrote a book called 72% Match with a friend of mine and it's in a male and female perspective. So he wrote the male half, I wrote the female half and it's, it talks, it's the premise is um, like online dating and these characters actually only run into each other twice in the entire book, right? But it's their perspectives and they're terrible people. They're just horrible, like all the terrible stuff happens to them. And she's like, you know, I really like the story, but I'm having a hard time reading it. And I said, is it because you don't identify anything with either one of the characters? And she's like, oh my gosh, yes, that's exactly it. Like I, she's one of those readers that wants to put herself with the character, one of the characters. And, and I'm like, okay, so just FYI, that is not going to happen with either one of these characters. That's not that kind of book. It's the kind of book you go, it's like watching a train wreck. Like you, you know what I mean? It's that kind of book where you're watching like a reality. Like online reading variants of shameless. Yeah, exactly. Where you're just (laughs) like, this is terrible. And it was, so it's so interesting you say that because it seems like your writing style very much is to the feelings and uh, the help of the reader versus just the entertainment of the reader. Cause some, some books are written just to be entertaining. You know what I mean? I am not much of an entertaining writer. I, I am definitely a, I want to change your perspective, get inside, get inside how you think, how you view the world and have you leave different. I think that's the crazy power of books and I enjoy escapist writing, but I don't write it. No, totally. I we well, we need all the writers in the world again. Exactly. I, uh, and it's it's I like that you say escapist because obviously, like when all of us write, all three of us are writers. We have emotions we want to engage with the writer, or reactions, right? But I can say honestly, uh, I I don't write my my fiction going. There's a life lesson to be learned here. I I write it for. You know, like my horror fiction, I write for the person. I want them to literally go, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> like, that's what I want them to have at the end. That If they have that reaction, then I'm like, I have nailed this completely. <laughs> oh my I, I feel like some creepy stalker, and I'm following my characters with a notebook, and I'm like, oh, 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 okay. And then he did this, and then he did that, and then I'm looking over my shoulder at the reader like, did you see that? <laughs> did you feel that? <laughs> like, Maybe it's good if you're not inspiring the stalkers and the horror and the horror <laughs> people to go and act. Maybe that's a good thing. No, it's probably a great thing. I do not want anyone to act on any of my stories. Please do not do that. That would be terrible. <laughs> right. And, and and I think that's where uh, a lot of the labels and genre breakups come into to play with you know the difference between a nonfiction uh and fiction piece like fiction we don't we're writing to express and not act upon where non-fiction or even uh inspirational fiction both are aiming for let's let's pull these emotions or this situation out into the open and let's digest it in a healthier way or in a different way and to me that's a beautiful thing like that that's that that we can get those two starking contrast in, in the writing field and, and between authors and readership. Now you were talking about uh, Turtle Envy, your other book. Uh, what brought that about? Why, what made you decide that this was going to be the next piece for you? 
That one, I started writing real time uh, when I first took my, the, the very first day I went to class and went, oh, this is horrible. And I, and I hate this class so much, but dang it, I am going to finish it. And when I get myself stuck in something that I know I'm going to have to process through, I usually start writing. So I wrote that. And as I started to enjoy some dives and experience of dives, I got to just gush about the coral reefs and the ocean and get all sciency and talk about geology. And it, and it became a lot of geeky fun for me to write. So I was determined to figure out how to put it in a book. I put it all together, had a first draft, and it was meh. It wasn't <laughs> great when that happens. Yeah. Like, like, okay, I got, I got some more word count. I, I got it out of my system. And then you're like, oh, this is revisions are going to hurt. I had to sit, I had, I had to put it aside for about a year. And when I looked back at it, I, I could figure out exactly why it wasn't working. Because my original version written real time was, this is a personal triumph story. I overcame and it wasn't exactly accurate because it's not a personal triumph story. It was a personal triumph story in figuring out that I needed to overcome my fear of trust and trust my husband so that my husband could help me overcome, which was a far different and more difficult story that I don't really like to admit. But hey, I put it in writing. So <laughs> now it's going to be admitted that writing I needed a whole lot of help. And it became a whole different story when I had a little bit of time to reflect on it. That's really awesome. I, I love that these stories are so deeply, deeply personal. But I think when you go to that level for what you're trying to accomplish, you, you have to. You yeah, can't, absolutely. you know, you've, you've, you've lived and breathed these experiences. So you're actually writing from a correct vantage point And you're taking the stuff that is not that surface layer of fluff. And you're going beneath the surface and going, here's the maybe ugly parts of this thing that most people don't want to admit to themselves. But I think that goes along with a lot of the, like the stigma and stuff out there about talking about mental, I don't want to just say mental illness, but any sort of issues in that regard that people are facing. It, it, you know, it's about mental wellness. Sometimes yes, we, we sort of have to reflect on, on, on ourselves a little bit and be like, oh, I probably could have handled that way better, you know, but I, I can't be the only one. And, and that, and that's the beauty about you sharing your stories because you, you know, deep down that you're not the only one. Uh, and to me that, you know, misery loves, loves company. Well, there's not a situation out there that is, just you who has felt or experienced the thing because that's that's the beautiful thing about humanity um and both your your nonfiction pieces involve your family a lot uh so how do they feel about your books because it's one thing to to settle with yourself and be able to push it out there but sometimes there's that whole barrier of oh crap like i I've involved other people, so, and this is going to be public consumption. So, how how did that that how did you handle that? That is a big issue with writing memoir, especially writing current memoir. The stuff is still happening. These people are in my life now. These are people I love and respect now. Um, redefining family, it was tough. I wrote. My draft, the way I wanted to write it, held nothing back, wrote out all the ugliness onto paper for myself. Um, but there are scenes I definitely cut and word choices I made before I allowed anybody else to read it. Um, because just because I carry some bitterness inside, because we all do, right, uh, doesn't mean I need to share that with the rest of the world. So there was definitely some editing before it got read by anyone. Uh, but my family had a full year to read the book ahead of time. They all got to see it. They all got to see how they were represented. Um, I only had one person ask that I remove one scene, um, which, which was kind of a funny scene. I put it in there because I thought it was humorous. Uh, she did not think it was humorous, so I took it out. Um, but I did give them the option of uh, starting with Katerina and her parents and her sister and saying, is it okay if I publish this at all? You are central to this book. If you don't want this out, you don't have to. You don't have to. It can just be something that's for you guys. 
And they were completely supportive. They've been incredibly supportive of the launch of marketing. Awesome. They've really been helpful. And then anybody else who was a named character in there who I didn't change their name got a say in how they were represented. And there were very few changes, but I did make a point to be kind in my representations. I can beat up on myself all I want, but writing about other people, I did make a point to be kind about. Uh, Turtle Envy, that one is almost all about me and my husband. And he was funny. In Redefining Family, 90% of that timeline took place before I ever met him. And the joke that he made to everybody is, you know, the book, it was good, except it needed more of that Jer character. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, okay, Jer, you get a whole book where you are just a primary character throughout the book. So uh, you didn't, you didn't show up much in the adoption one because I didn't know you yet, but here's a whole book that is just all about that Jer character. Um, And again, I, I make decisions on what to include and not include because, hey, I'd like to stay married to this guy. Um, but <laughs> Very important. <laughs> Very cool. I think we have to take a break. Is it 30 minutes? Uh, it says 20, 25, 26 minutes. Okay, so we're good then. We get to go another five minutes. You have to be in control of these things, Val. Yeah. We have important yeah. things I to adhere to. I, I got to look over to the far left to but the camera's to the far right. <laughs> it's too much, Erica. I can't handle I know. I can't handle I don't know why I trusted you with this responsibility. Um, so first, let's talk about um, what is your next journey? Have you started a journey? Um, are you working on things? I have another book coming out January 2021. And okay. it's right in that same vein we were talking about earlier of going really raw and covering the con- covering the content people don't like to talk about. It's called Couch Days, Rejoining Life After a Slump. And it is how you drum up the energy to get off the couch when the weight of depression has settled on you and in in my case has also partnered up with that really vicious inner bully who self-sabotages everything you do. And it's a really, it's a very honest and raw look at what it takes to get off the couch, to, to rebuild life, to get restarted. Uh, it's one I'm mostly intimidated about putting out there because it's very personal, but it's also uh, written over a series of patterns So where Redefining Family was one experience chronological and Turtle Envy is one experience chronological, Couch Days is a cycle and it's, it's periods that people go through. And most people go through, if you, if you go through one, you more than likely have gone through it a number of times. And so it's a little bit different in collapsing a number of those patterns together to show the whole story of starting from when life has gotten small and all your free time is just spent on your phone in front of the TV, not doing any of the things that you wish you were doing and how you chisel your way out of that. I think that's brilliant because I yeah. just this morning, again, I've had a very relevatory morning meaning, um, but I was talking to somebody who's experiencing just that. I can't wait that your book's out and I can refer him to that because he was experiencing that exact situation this morning when I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I've just been watching Netflix. And I'm like, okay, we got to get you out of the slump. And what's very interesting, I think, about your pieces, it's, it's very different and um is, you know, you can read uh, books or something like that, but if you don't hone in on the exact point and share very similar experiences from a voice that is like, hey, this is the the down and dirty, and then this is how you accomplish getting out of it, I think you don't even have a recognition that completely, like, you kind of know you're doing it, but you don't look at the pattern all the times you're doing it. And if you don't have a way out, that's the biggest thing. If there isn't a doorway that you see anywhere or a window or a small crevasse or something to start working towards getting out of it, you don't get out of it. You just sit in it and it even gets worse because you're just sitting in it and you can't. I think it's almost worse when you recognize that you're doing it and then you don't have an out. Out, yeah. Because then you're spinning on the fact that you're doing it, that you know you're doing it, and there isn't any doorway to get yourself out of this situation. Like, I've got a checklist of, of things. Like, writing is one of my biggest stress relievers. Even whether I'm depressed or feeling anxious, it doesn't matter. If I'm not feeling 
uh, kosher, as I call it. I just, I'm like, you know what? I, I just got to sit and write, and it's almost like a reset button for me. And um, and I know a lot of writers can feel that way, too. Like, they feel more miserable when they're not writing. Have you sort of hit that that stage in your own cycles, like, where you, you need to write to feel okay? I think it's important to know what your list is, what, what the list of things. People have a self-care list of things they think make them feel good. And they have a self-care list of stuff that actually makes them feel good. And they're usually not the same. And they yeah. think that you know, if I just relax, take a nap and eat some ice cream, I'll feel better. Oh. And in the end, you just don't. Uh, or, and But what really helps people feel better looks more like writing, calling an old friend who is always available to them, um, getting out and taking a walk. It's, it's the basic stuff that we don't like to do because it feels like it takes more energy, but it really provides you more energy when you do it. But it is really hard to break that cycle. I actually wrote this one uh, for a friend of mine. Uh, somebody very close to her was really struggling. And in a conversation with my friend, she was saying, why won't she just get up? Why, why can't she just eat better and exercise, she would feel so much better. And I keep telling her how much better she would feel if she didn't, if she would just do this. And I could hear my friend's frustration and how much and where it came from a point of love. And I was trying to show her, but this is what it's like when you're in it. And, yeah. and those are a mismatch and you can't just get up. Like that's, that's not how it works. So I was trying to kind of be a voice of this is what it feels like in the midst of it and getting out of it looks different than you think. It's not just going to the gym. That doesn't just fix it. Right. Exactly. Right. We have hit the 30 minute mark, Erica. So we're going to take a brief break and we will be right back with our amazing guest. Hey, thank you for listening to Drinking With Authors. We wanted to let you know that if you're an aspiring author out there and you'd like to be on our podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. Or if you guys have a question, comment, want to tell us some little tidbit of interesting news, you can always direct message us or comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love that you're listening. We love that you're out there. And we look forward to hearing from you. Okay, we're, we're back. We're back after some technical... Uh, anyway, we did it. We're back. Okay. So um, let's talk about your writing style. So you're because of what you're writing, you're kind of journaling your writing. I don't want to ask if you're a plotter or a pantser because you're keeping, obviously, notes about it. Tell us about how you write. So the style that came out for Redefining, uh, Redefining Family came out like poetry, more like poetry than like prose. Uh, which was really weird because I do not fancy myself a poet. But that was the only thing that could happen with that book. And the more I played with it, the more I really loved the style. So it's a little bit like the way Kwame Alexander writes or the way Elizabeth Acevedo writes. Um, and when I started tinkering with that as a voice, Turtle Envy also became a much, much better book. And then Everything else I tried to write after that simply flowed once I hit on it. It was it was completely changed how I write. Uh, my process looks a lot like me sitting outside with a paper and pen and handwriting random scenes out of order all over the page, and then eventually going back to the computer and trying to put them together into something that makes sense to anybody who does not live in my head. Oh, that's good. Are there many people that live in your head? Is it like a condo community? Is it a single family home? Apartments. It's mostly me, but there's also a very mean version of me that lives in there too. Oh, totally understand that. We are our own worst critic. Yes. But I can't even say the word. Critic. Thank you. Critic. You're welcome. It's a good thing you're pretty, Val. Um, so what about, how many words do you think you write? Like if you sit down for an hour and you're really on a, on a, tear how many words can you write maybe maybe 2000 i tend to write in in spurts where i will come up with a book idea think about it for six months and then set aside okay in the next two months i'm going to finish this draft and so then i 
pull out my notebook and every time I have 10 minutes or 20 minutes, I sit down, I add more to it, I, I blast through it so that I finish a draft within a number of weeks, not a number of months or years. Um, but I've been thinking about it for ages before I finally sit down and do that. Um, and then I just sort of peter out and I have to let everything sit for a while. So it's not... I can have days where I write 10,000 words, but not consistently. It's very much a project-oriented sort of schedule. Uh, and I love that you say that because, uh, like, last March, uh, a co-worker uh, was like, you can't possibly be still, like, working this job as, as, as a lead typesetter and and still be able to write your novels. I said, absolutely. And she's like, well, how? And I'm like... 10 to 20 minutes a day. That's all I need to keep it momentum going. And she's like, how much can you possibly write in that time? I, so one of my pieces of advice for new writers is do a sprint, whether it's a 10-minute timer or 20-minute timer. Find out what that the, the average word count is for that small amount of time, and you might surprise yourself. For me, it could be anywhere between 150 to 500, depending how how focused I get or excited I am about the scene I'm working on, but and I love that you you're the same way. That's that's how you write. You you find your ten minutes here, your twenty minutes there. You know me. It's between laundry loads. I can I can bust out a scene or two, um, but I I think uh, there's this misconception that writers sit down and spend an entire day writing in front of the old typewriter in their attic or basement. And that's not the case. Life's busy. So being able to recognize that it's okay to write every for 10 minutes or 20 minutes it, and not even have a schedule uh, is, is awesome. And, and you've done it with several books uh, at this point and several stories. And I love that. NaNoWriMo was one of my favorite self-education experiences because it taught me how to stop wasting my writing hours. I was, prior to doing NaNoWriMo, I would try to set aside an hour every day at the same time of day, and my production was just crap. <laughs> it was just not good um, because I would do things where I would get to a spot and I couldn't think of the right word, so I would think about it for 15 minutes and look up synonyms and try to come up with the right word. And I would waste the time that I had set aside. And once I did NaNoWriMo, where you where it forced me to find other crevices in my day to just keep going, keep putting words on paper, I realized that there's such a smarter way for me to be productive, where I sit down when I have 10 minutes and the inspiration and I blast through it. And if I get stuck, I walk away. I go and I do the laundry and I walk the dog and I take a shower. And that's when I sit there and think about that word that I'm stuck on or that scene I can't come through. But it's not wasted writing time. I think about it while I'm doing other stuff so that every time I sit down to the page, I'm ready to just take off. I think that's brilliant. I think that's the, the part that every writer needs to find what works for them. But the, the mantra is you have to write. Whatever it is, whether it's and getting up and walking away, just doing repetitive 20-minute sprints. I've been with Val where she resets her timer and resets her timer for 20-minute sprints. Um, we at a writing group I'd been a part of did this exercise thing, which I thought was pretty brilliant. I didn't think it was brilliant when I started, but um, you, they, three people in the writing group would pick a word, right? And um, then we'd have to take those three words and you'd have five minutes to write a little mini story, with those three words. And I was never the fastest. I've never been the fastest writer. Um, I'm, I'm more of a, a, a long distance endurance runner than a sprint runner. Um, but they'd write with those um, five words and what um, I'm sorry, three words in five minutes. And what amazed me is these little stories. And when you first do it, you maybe get like three sentences out. Like maybe you get, 50 words on the page if you're lucky, right? But after you do this for a little while, you can get 150, 200, 350 like words out depending on how fully formed the story is and how in alignment you are with those particular words, right? And it, it was interesting because I was talking to another friend of mine who was in that group who was having some problems working on her writing and stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, pull up your stories real quick. And she goes, what do you mean? I'm like, pull up your five minute stories. 
Because I was like, you can write a thousand words a day. It's possible to do that, right? I'm not saying every day, but it's easily possible. She goes, I don't know. I said, pull up your five-minute stories. And she pulled them up, and I'm like, okay, take 10 of them and tell me what the average of the word count you had for those 10 stories. What's the average? And the average was like 200 words, right, for 10. And I'm like, okay, that's less than an hour technically because that's five minutes apiece, 50 minutes. So you had... You can write in in this instance. You could write two thousand words in an hour if you did it. And she was like mind blown. Like I could hear her, you know, brain exploding on the phone. And it was. It took her a little while to have that full realization that it that was actually an accurate statement. And I think, you know, it's all on how you look at things. And this actually look at me. Kai full circle back to the kind of books you put out is how you look at situations. You can look at it that this insurmountable goal and I have to write, you know, 80,000 words for this book and I have 50,000 to go and it's overwhelming and it's daunting and I have like weeks to get this done or you could go, well, how many can I do? Obviously you'll get stuck and sometimes you have to research a point or something like that. But then I think it's discipline and going I'm not going down that rabbit hole. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or you put a little com- comment on your thing and go, oh, replace this it. word and just move on. And at some point when you come back, you can go, okay, what word did I actually mean to use there? You know? Because when you get stuck, it doesn't work. Mm-mm. Yep. I agree completely. So what is what about your next? So you have the, the couch one. What about the next one? Uh, After couch days, the next one which I'm hoping to come out in July 2021 is too soon to talk about yet. Got it. About it, but it's too soon. That's fine. But the readers can look forward that there's more to come. There's Um, absolutely more to come. Absolutely. Is there, is there um, a more fiction coming out soon? More fiction. uh, There's an anthology called on time by transmundane press. And that is coming out this fall. Uh, otherwise, I don't have any fiction coming out soon. I would like to, but I'm still, I, I'm still working through some of the craft of it. I can write a a well crafted short story, but when it comes to a full length novel, which is what I'm working on, it's not quite ready to share yet. So I'm still skill building. We should we should trade notes because I I totally I cannot close a short story. Last week write an 80k six book series. Uh, yeah, no, I can I can what I can look that six books. It's a ten book series right now. I don't know what you're talking about. Six books, Val. <laughs> I I can write. I follow those characters and I write down every little thing. And Val <laughs> cannot do flash fiction to save her life. Like if it was a life or death situation, and you have one thousand words and you have. To no, nope. can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah. Uh, oh, but you mentioned uh, that you have a writing group and stuff. How um, I'm always encouraging people to find writing groups, critique books, reach out to other writers because there's this this misconception that writing is a, a solitary thing. How how has joining writing groups affected uh, how you go about completing your books and tackling your writing? Well, that changed everything. Um, So I found Tampa Writers Alliance off of Meetup. And Tampa Writers Alliance is still going strong, still meeting via Zoom now that it's COVID times. Um, And it changed everything. Uh, I have been writing forever. And back in my early 20s, I was submitting stuff. And it just makes me cringe. Those poor agents who had to read those queries for things that weren't thought out. And it wasn't written well. Oh, you can't. Writing is not a solitary sport. It's there's a reader on the other end of what you're writing and you have to get feedback. You can't be in your little echo chamber. Um, And once I found a quality critique group and by quality, I mean, they don't tell me everything is wonderful when it's not. And they don't tell me everything is crap when it's not, but they actually give me feedback that I can use that I can apply that goes for my writing going forward. That makes such a huge difference when you stop being in your own vacuum. I fixed major, I've always been able to write pretty words, uh, but structuring those into a whole story arc was something I had to learn. 
uh, putting, making dialogue digestible, making characters likable, making sure my main character was my main character and my secondary character wasn't the most interesting thing in the book, right? All those pieces that you learn, you learn because people gave you feedback and say, okay, you you have good skill with pretty words. Now here's what you need to work on. Um, it is absolutely invaluable. So my advice for writers, if you are currently writing in a vacuum, go get some feedback, go join a group. And you don't have to stick with one group, so try a group. And if you like half of the group, maybe ask a couple people if they're interested in a one-off group on another night of the week. Maybe try another group and see if you can pull together your or your own collection of people that have the same genre, the same feedback. Um, there's always information to be gained. The One of the places I think people go wrong or why they... Why they show up, they get their first critique, and then they say, that's bull, I'm not going to listen to any of it, I think is largely because you do have to qualify your critique partners. They have to like the genre you write. They yeah. have to be actual readers. And you shouldn't be taking big advice from people who don't read what right. you like. Sometimes right. their advice can be helpful, but usually they'll send you down the wrong path. So you just, oh you, gosh, yes. you give their advice, you say thank you, but then you put a star next to everybody who actually reads what you write, and then you focus on their advice instead. And I give that same advice when, when, when you're looking for an editor. Make sure that editor edits, reads, and, and works in your genre. Like, it's nice to find an editor who does multi multiple genres, but they better be good at those genres that are listed. Or you're you're going, like you said, like, uh, uh, I, I wrote a fairy tale, a short story fairy tale romance, and one of the complaints I got in the feedback is they fell in love too quickly. The fairy tale <laughs> romance, that's sort of like, like a rule number one, insta-love. Insta-love is a requirement. You know, so it's like you you have to be careful because there is a such thing as a bad critique, but every critique has a little something that they're exposing that you have to sit back and be like, oh, do I have this in my story because I'm, it's nostalgic for me? Because a lot of us, especially with our first books, uh, I think Rebirth took me over 13 years to complete, and now I'm, like, sneezing out short stories in three days. Like, <laughs> Erica, your face is great. You're like, I'm not amused. But um, she has to go back through Rebirth. That's why I have that look on her, my yeah, face as yeah, her publisher. Yeah, I, yeah. She needs to fix Rebirth. <laughs> I have to fix it because it's a high school piece, and there's nostalgic tied into it. And there's that whole level. Did, did you come across that where now that you're learning stuff from the critique part, partners and writing group that you had to make the hard call of like, I know they're right, but I like it like it is, but it's not really good for readers kind of. Oh, way. absolutely. I have to cut stuff I like, but I, on the same vein, I think we should always be embarrassed of what we wrote five years ago. Like if, if you're not, then you've stopped learning and you've stopped growing. So the fact that I have a few things published that I don't, and I don't love having my name associated with anymore, I think it is a really great thing to show that, hey, I'm, I'm still working on my craft. And I think you're always growing. It's interesting because we've talked about this. Um, do you go back to your, I know you talk about your books and you read your books. Your books are very, um, something that is, uh, that needs to be, um, I don't, I hate the word lecture. What is the word I, I use instead of lecture? But like, like talked about groups, like, you know, mm -hmm. things, this is a discussion point. I don't like the word lecture. Cause that sounds like something our parents would do to us. Right. Especially <laughs> about whatever they thought we were doing wrong. Um, and so these are discussion point books. So I'm sure you go back to them and you read points out of them and stuff like that. But I find like, I'll, I can go back to one of the first novels or stories and I am, I read one last night that I, I published eight years ago now. It was a little short story that was in an anthology. And I had a horror, uh, a horror writer's uh, event last night. And I read this story. And there's a few, like, uh, things in it where I was like, they're not horrible, but grammatically they, they could be better. Like, they're not the end of the – like, I didn't read it and go, that's not even a word. Like, why is that in there, right? And they did go through kind of an editing process with somebody who's – 
thought they were an editor that wasn't. And I'm reading it and I'm like, this is, it's still a good story, but it, it really, it needs to be tightened up a little bit. Like we got to tighten it. And I thought about it and I'm like, okay, I can put it. And I started writing on the list and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why, why would I go back to this piece? Like, this is like, I love this piece. It's a great short story, but it's going backwards in time. And I find that when I'm reading, like, and I, I hit a, a grammar thing in my book where like, it's, artists were like, we're going to fix this and it's going to be perfect. And we're going to fix everything that's wrong. (laughs) And then we realized like, how much time do you want to actually spend on this book going back and going back and going back? Do you run into that at all? So I think tying words to some sort of mission, that's a terrible word, but that, that is the word uh, to some sort of mission helps me get over the perfectionism. So after I wrote redefining family, it sat for a year while family members read it, approved it, um, and I gathered my courage up to be willing to put this much intimate detail about my life out into the public. Um, and when I, when it was sitting there, it bothered me because I started to get this urgency behind it of there are birth bombs right now placing kids for adoption and who are going through this and this voice is not out there and it needs to be out there. And I'm sitting on it because I'm self-conscious, because I'm not sure it's perfect, because if I built five more years worth of skills, it'd probably be a better book if five years from now, maybe I should just never ever put it out there and never get the words out. And when you start tying it to somebody who actually needs your book right now, it really helps overcome that. Uh, Couch Days is another one. I didn't want to launch my first book until I had three completed books. So I was on a, I had a goal, finish three books so that I could launch them one right after another, start building a following, start getting to a point where I could start doing some marketing. Um, And then after I wrote Couch Days, I looked at that one as well and went, this is a book that is actually needed. There, There are people currently stuck who never had to work through this before. And especially with COVID, everybody's routines got shot. Anybody that was kind of uh, team, um, uh, on the brink of, of losing healthy habits, it just all went out the window and, they did, and everything got closed and life got very, very small. So I think there's a whole new audience that has never had to work through this kind of thing before that needs it. And so sitting on it just doesn't become an option if you think there's a reader out there that could really benefit. And yeah, it might be better if I waited another 10 or 20 or 30 years of skilling up, but that's not the point. I agree a thousand percent. I thought of something. You have nonfiction books, so it's a little different than those of us that are are fiction peeps as far as getting our word out there. Have you um, reached out to like adoption agencies and stuff like that with your book to go, hey, here's here's a book you can give the birth mothers to do this? Yes and no. One of the one of my biggest supporters right now is an adoption lawyer out of South Florida. And awesome. um, she she put together a wonderful opportunity for me to speak directly with a her birth mom support group. And these are mostly women who have placed very recently. One of them had placed that week and to speak oh, wow. to them one on one of, hey, what you're feeling right now. It doesn't have to be permanent. I know how awful it is and really have that conversation was just an amazing opportunity. Um, And she's helping to uh, spread the word, spread the books, try to get them out there. Partly, uh, my book does not necessarily appeal to adoption agencies. It's not very flattering about the adoption industry. This is a multi-billion dollar industry that profits from girls like me, girls who are stuck and have no options. And I don't really sugarcoat that in the book. Uh, It's great for healing for birth parents afterwards, but it's not necessarily the one that adoption agencies want to promote. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. Um, And, you know, we're always talking about reviews and how you handle reviews on here. And with fiction, you know, a lot of people, you know, either avoid them or they, or they're okay with them. How have you had, do you avoid your reviews? Do you dive in there? Like how, how are reviews on such an intimate, uh, personal, uh, book like this? I love getting the reviews. Um, And I especially love the ones that get sent to me privately, even though, yes, I would love it if you review my book on Amazon. It definitely helps. 
it's the ones that get emailed me privately where they say I could never post all of this publicly, but here's how it resonated because here is my personal story with infertility, with being an adoptee, with being a birth mom and nobody knows and I've never told anybody, right? Those are the ones where I've, I've had a real powerful impact that make me want to sit back down and finish my next book and get it out there. That's awesome. That is That's amazing. Awesome. I love that. That's very cool. Okay, let's talk about for um so as you're as you're doing this process, did you you self-published, correct? I did. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit cuz sometimes we have you know, traditionals, sometimes hybrids and sometimes just self. Let's talk about why you did self-publishing. Yes. Right now, the big push in the memoir industry in traditional publishing, it's almost all celebrity memoirs. And I am not a celebrity. Uh, yet. <laughs> so, yet. Yet. I'm putting yet out there for you in the universe. <laughs> uh, this, um, the book is not a niche book. I, I mean, it's the permanence of a mother's love. It's, it's relatable. It's, it's connecting to anybody who's gone through re- grief, who's gone through love. Right? It's, it's a very relatable book. Mm-hmm. But adoption memoirs are generally passed on without more than a glance because they tend to always be from the adoptee side. They always have a very strong uh, political bent and a very strong religious bent. There's There's an idea of what an adoption memoir is. And if I can fit in that group, then there's a built-in niche. Mine doesn't fit into any of those at all. Um, And so it doesn't fit the only niche that exists for that kind of memoir. If I were a traditional agent, I would have passed on it. I don't know how I would sell that in a traditional model. As an indie publisher, I can go directly to the groups that will that need this. The right. moms working through grief, the birth parents, the people that are experiencing loss of a child, working through um, disconnection from a child, that sort of thing. That's. I, I think that's awesome. But so that's, obviously, go ahead. But the, yeah, that that's. I think that's a, a great um, thing to bring up because a lot of people don't realize that. Agents and publishers are looking for very, you know, they have all these boxes and marketing plans already pre-set up that they could pull off of previous books and they, they daisy chain things together. And if you don't connect with any of those daisy chains, they, they will pass on a book. Your book can be an award-winning book. Um, there could be nothing wrong with the book and they'll still pass. Like for some reason, a lot of people take it as there's something wrong with the book. And then a lot of times it may not even be the case. Like usually if there's something wrong with the book, you either get like hard pass instant passes within the first 30 days, or you see uh, them giving you feedback on, Hey, like you might want to go back to the drawing board a little bit on X, Y, Z. Um, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a genre slut and I blend and mix the things. And then the same thing with you. I don't have those layers that they're looking for in my work normally. So it's always infuriating because I want to be a hybrid author, but I write too much out of the box to ever, ever get picked up. And it's, it's, it's a a realization that some authors have to realize, like if you dream to be traditional, you have to be careful about which book you're putting out there, the champion for that. And I'm not opposed to traditional publishing someday. Um, I have a few picture books that I'm working on that I think would be best served under a traditional publisher. Um, But for the memoir genre, I am absolutely loving the indie publishing model, the, the flexibility it allows me, the ability to do bulk sales so that they can be given away at adoption events. There's some things that I can do with this that have been incredible that I would not have had under traditional. Awesome. Let's talk about the journey of becoming one, though, because it it's not hard, but it's not easy to do tr- indie publishing. So there are some little bumps and um, interesting, interesting little fun things that you you learn. But I feel like you know we're working on um, a little bit of. Uh, putting some stuff out there on our, our publishing site for Horseman for indie 
pub uh, in the authors that want to use it. Like, you know, obviously we're a publisher. We want to publish people's books, but at the same time, we, we, our entire mission is to help people. Like that's our goal is to help other authors because, you know, we, I feel like, you know, to your point that you need a community. I think a lot of times indie authors are alone on an Island and you get all this weird crap. Like if you listen to this podcast and do this thing, you could sell a million dollars worth of books in a month on Amazon. And it's kind of like, <laughs> a little watered down out there. They're like little, little, little not. And today. you know, there are so many people that are like, "I'll help you by advertising. You just need to pay me seventy-five dollars," which doesn't sound like a lot, but does that actually help? And does it do this thing? And we talked about like actually putting a book up for sale on some of these sites. So what was that like for you when you were kind of going, did you, are you a research person that will go down the research rabbit hole like now and do that entire thing? <laughs> it was daunting. Um, I found a few really great resources that I trusted uh, over time so that I didn't have to find every resource with conflicting advice. I could rely on a couple of really great ones. Uh, Joanna Penn's Creative Pen Podcast. I devoured almost every episode and relied heavily on kind of her guideline. Um, becoming an indie author, it's, it's a lot of work. I did go through the research phase. I also started the research phase before I had a book. Um, I've been paying attention and trying to understand how the industry works, how the process works for years. And so once I had Redefining Family, I set up my own publishing small press, Wandering River Press, um, and all my books are published under that. I set it up as an LLC so that I can, so that it's its own business. Um, but all the little decisions along the way were crazy. Uh, I'm a project manager in my day job. And this a so when I was doing all my research, I didn't just research it and say, okay, that's what I'll do. I, every new thing I learned about, I slotted into this fake project plan until by the time I was ready, I went, okay, I have a six month project plan with every single step along the way that I need to do and, and by what time. And it, it took so much stress off of me. Wow. And the moment you said project managers, uh, never mind. She's got this. She's, She's got this. <laughs> project managers, ridiculous in detailed, amazing situations and stuff like that. Yeah. No. And yeah. do you think you might eventually share that with the world? I would love to. I love to speak. I love to teach. Um, and managing your own publishing process. There's so much to it. And right now I have a template for when I'm ready to start couch days, I'm just going to copy my new book launch template. And there's six months of tasks that I have to do in order. They're all laid out by week so that no week is overwhelming. And I think giving those kind of tools to authors and teaching them how to set up their own system like this would be wonderfully powerful. I agree a thousand percent. I, I agree. We should connect you up with MK Williams, who d has done kind of a similar thing. She's an author. She's a, she, she's a genre whore like Val, where she's all over the place hey, with her genres. Hey, hey, but she hey, actually hey, wrote the beginner's guide to um, self-publishing and the beginner's guide to um, m marketing self-publishing okay. books and she has a podcast that she kind of does a, a youtube videos because she got asked a lot of questions i'm gonna i'm gonna hook you guys up if that's okay because i think adding that together because you know we just have to help each other because there's all this stuff on how to do it but it can the moment you go i'm gonna self-publish i'm gonna do this thing and then it's like pound 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 pound, pound. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I can't do it myself yeah. at it's all. It's not just publishing a book. You are starting a business. I think that's a misconception. Like, oh, I'm just going to self-publish. Uh, no, you're starting a business the moment you say that. Um, because you are, like you, you being a project manager, you become the project manager or the general contractor, however, whatever label connects with you. And then you have to decide, am I going to subcontract out this stuff? Am I going to learn this the hard way and try to do this myself? Like there's so, and there's more than one way to achieve each little subsection. And, um, I'm always telling people like, if you're going to self-publish, know that one, you're going to wear many hats and don't try to wear more than one hat at a time. Like when you're going into, to marketing mode, you take off the, the other hats and you put on 
just that hat and hyper focus because otherwise if you try to do it all at the same time you're going to get frustrated and you're going to you're going to get depressed sometimes or you're just going to walk away um and I think for me as a self-publisher and even uh with Four Horsemen I think my biggest struggle is marketing and um what what is your biggest struggle as an indie author and publisher um so with with the first book I paid for a cover design because I do not know how to design covers. I did a little bit of learning how you would do it. Uh, and then I went, this is beyond my capability. So I paid her, but I also negotiated that she would give me her raw files, knowing that I was going to write in a series and that my next few books would not need to be completely redesigned. They should look like a set. I was able to get her raw files so I can make my own covers for the rest of this series. But Smart. when I start a new series, I'll pay for another designer to start over and give me a brand new and original design. So there's that piece where I'm kind of, kind of doing it on my own, but with a lot of support. Um, the marketing I'm only dipping my toe into at the middle at, at the moment, because I'm waiting to have all three of my books out. Once I have three full books out, then I'll do a big heavy push to get all three of them some notice but at the moment, there's not a, there's nowhere to read through, so there's no reason to spend a lot of money and hustle trying to get new readers yet. So that one's still coming. The thing that I would absolutely hire out forever and never do myself again is audio editing. Uh, for my audio books, I narrated them myself. I love the narration part. It's exhausting. It's painful. It's and for when it's when it's talking about grief that you live through, it's really really draining. But I really like the experience. I love doing it, and I love the result. But oh my god, editing editing audio is is the worst, and I never want to do it again. Yep. No. Exactly. Nope. I, I'm I'm with you on. By the way, both of those points. That's why I have Valerie, and she does all the covers and stuff because yeah. I look at Adobe and I think it could go blank itself. I, I'm an Adobe <laughs> whiz. I self-taught myself in middle school. You know, she's brilliant, <laughs> but I I can't do that. And the same is true with the audio. Like we have our um, a podcast consigliere Adam who takes files and makes them into brilliant stuff. So we only sound like the idiots that we do on the actual podcast, which he can't do any sort of audio fixing. <laughs> but I think that's a really good point. Okay. Well, we're getting to the end of the episode. I would yep. like my friend, some seamless self promotion from you yes, again. You so the yes. readers can reach out. Everything can be found at aksteinerbooks.com. You can find Redefining Family and Turtle Envy are available now, and Couch Days will be up for pre order shortly. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, it has been wonderful. Thank you again for coming back to our podcast, considering, you know, technical. I love having you. I'm super excited on these books anyway. Couch Potato, I can't wait to get into my hot little hands. So the moment (laughs) that bad boy, I'm going to be like, and you get one? And you get, okay, I'm just buying it for everybody. Everybody's getting it. We all get the same book. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. All the people that are, not you, you're not a Couch Potato person. But, um, uh, there are many others. Uh, okay, I'll get you the book. I'll get you the book. Whatever. That's fine. Okay, so you got many pre-orders coming from me. So anyway, thank you so much again for being with us. I really appreciate it. I think what you've done is brilliant, and I love that your voice is out in the world. So thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, and this has been Drinking With Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Willis. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Woo! Woo!